بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Today we move on from the four khulafa and we continue our journey to understand the ashara mubashara What is the secret of these people's success? Why did the Prophet ﷺ guarantee them Jannah? Just to remind us, the hadith of Tirmidhi is related from Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiyallahu anhu. Rasulullah said, Abu Bakr fil Jannah, Umar fil Jannah, Uthman fil Jannah, Ali fil Jannah, wa Talhatu fil Jannah, wa Zubayr fil Jannah, wa Abdurrahman ibn Awf fil Jannah, wa Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas fil Jannah, wa Sa'id ibn Zayd fil Jannah, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah fil Jannah. In one sitting, he mentioned these 10 names and he said they're in paradise. Now that's a guarantee. So that's why we continue this discussion. The one we're speaking about today is an amazing man. Very few narrations have been transmitted from him in the books. About seven or eight narrations, that's it, from him directly, something he related. Imam Bukhari has nothing from him. Imam Muslim has one or two or something. And the reason is that he died young, 50 something, and much of his later life was taken up by the, by the, the wars of the Muslim land, the jihad. After the Prophet ﷺ, he died in the time of Umar, uh, Umar al-Khattab anhu, and he was out there in the battlefield as the commander of the forces of Sham. His name is Amir. Abu Ubaidah, Abu Ubaidah is his title, his agnomen, but his name is Amir. Amir ibn Abdullah, ibn al-Jarrah, ibn Hilal, ibn Uhayb, ibn Dabba, ibn al-Harith, and then ibn al-Fihr, ibn Fihr. This is where he links up with the family of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Fihr, and then it goes on, Fihr ibn Malik ibn al-Nadhar. Ibn Kinana, Ibn Khuzayma, Ibn Mudrika, Ibn Ilyas, Ibn Mudar, Ibn Nazar, Ibn Ma'ad, Ibn Adnan, Al-Qurashi. But because he's from Fihr, he's Al-Fihri. Uh, just uh, two weeks ago, I spoke about the first university ever to be established in the world, which was in Fez in Morocco. And that was established by Fatima Al-Fihriya. Same family, it seems. Fatima Al-Fihriya. Uh, she was uh, uh, the, the first woman, I mean, the first university in the world has been established by a woman. Earlier than, earlier than Azhar University, earlier than Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Salamanca and others which were even before Oxford. So anyway, let's carry on with our discussion. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah is of the Asabiqun al-Awwalun, the early the early pioneers, the early forerunners of accepting the faith. It, is said, uh, it says that he embraced Islam a day or so after Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. He was maybe uh, not one of the first eight, but he was definitely one within the first 40. And he embraced Islam before the Prophet started to use the house of Arkham for his meetings. This was around the year 611, Gregorian. He also migrated to Habsha. He was also one of those like Uthman who initially under the persecution in Makkah Mukarramah, they went to Abyssinia. So he had gone there as well. 
And he was also one of those who helped Uthman and then collect the Quran as well afterwards. So these are some of the things about him. However, one of the greatest things about him, one of the greatest narrations about him, is that once the people of Najran, the people of Najran had come to the Prophet These were of Christian background. And they wanted the Prophet to send a person with them. But the condition they put is that we want you to only send an extremely trustworthy individual. We want somebody very trusted, Amin. Somebody very, very trusted. So the Prophet ﷺ promised, he said, I'm going to send you a very trustworthy individual who will fulfill the rights of being a trustworthy individual. Meaning in the true sense of the word, he will be trustworthy. Now all the Sahaba, they are looking forward to see if they would be chosen for this honor. Prophet ﷺ hadn't announced to it, he was going to choose yet. So everybody's looking, not because they want to be an Amir or a leader, but because they want to be given this glad tiding that you are a trustworthy individual by none other than Rasulullah So people like Umar ibn al-Khattab and others are hoping that this is them. However, the Prophet says, Qum ya Aba Ubaidah, stand O Abu Ubaidah, subhanAllah. That's, that's how he became, that's why Anas ibn Malik anhu relates hadith of Bukhari and Muslim. Rasulullah said, Every ummah has a specific, very known, reputable, trustworthy individual. And the Amin and trustworthy individual of this ummah is Abu Ubaidah ibn al Jarrah. Hafiz ibn Hajar al Askalani he mentions that this doesn't mean that the others were non trustworthy. That all the other Sahaba are non-trustworthy. No. What this means is that the Prophet ﷺ liked to designate a particular title or quality or characteristic for the main Sahaba. And that's why he mentioned about Uthman having the greatest haya and modesty, chastity, bashfulness, which others had as well. But there was just a, a bit extra. There was something very distinctive about haya in Uthman. Likewise, when it came to amana. Everybody had amana, the sahaba, they all amin, but he had just something very distinctive about him. In fact, the way I look at it, this is just a reflection of Rasulullah Different reflections of the Prophet The Prophet what was he known as among the people of Makkah Mukarramah? He was known as the amin, the truthful one. And hence now you have one of his ummah who has that reflection more than the others have it. And likewise with all the other reflections of the Prophet Abu Hurairah reports, and this is a hadith of Bukhari, that once we were sitting, while uh, once the Prophet was sitting, he was speaking to the people, when suddenly a desert Arab came by. And he said, ya he said, when is the day of judgment? So when is the final hour? Rasulullah just carried on speaking. He didn't turn to him and respond to him there and then. Some of the people said that he's heard what he has said. The Prophet ﷺ has heard him, but he may have disliked his question. Some said, no, maybe he hasn't heard what he has said. You know, because when the Prophet ﷺ hasn't responded, the Prophet ﷺ was not known to be a rude person. So uh, to ignore somebody, though it's rude to come and just say something in between when somebody else is speaking anyway. When the Prophet ﷺ finished his speech, then he said, Aina urahu sa'il where, where is the person who, uh, who asked about the final hour? 
I am here, Ya Rasulullah. He said, the day of judgment will occur. And these were different responses he had given over whenever he was asked. But this one, this time he said, فَإِذَا دُيِّعَتِ الْأَمَانَةِ فَانْتَظِرِ السَّاعَةِ When trustworthiness is lost, when it disappears, then wait for the day of judgment. So as slowly, slowly as amana is lost from this world, then the day of judgment gets closer. In fact, there was a, there, there was a, a very interesting coverage in one of the recent editions uh, uh, or one of the recent um, of uh, The Economist. It's called the, that we are living in a post-truth era. Post-truth era. They've even got a name for it. This is where somebody doesn't necessarily tell a full falsehood. It's kind of a half falsehood just to distract attention. And one of the people at the forefront of this is Donald Trump. Of telling for it's just to divert attention. So people start discussing it. It's not a clear untruth necessarily. It's just showing some kind of untruth and it's become respectable in a sense. It's not respectable, but it's become acceptable. This is the kind of world we're living in. All of politics is about that. And it acknowledges there that, look, politicians have been lying over and over again. So what's different about this? This is a different form of expression. It's more murkier. It's the, the, when, when somebody lies, it's a straightforward white lie. These are different. That's the kind of world we're living in. And as you can see, we're getting closer. That's why there's numerous hadith about this. Imam Muslim has another narration from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu. Since we're on the topic of amana, just to give you an understanding of what it meant for somebody to have significantly great amount of amana, this is to underscore that. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ مِنْ أَعْظَمِ الْأَمَانَةِ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ الرَّجُلِ يُفْضِي إِلَى مْرَأَتِهِ وَتُفْضِي إِلَيْهِ ثُمَّ يَنْشُرُ سِرَّهَا one of the greatest betrayals of trust, one of the greatest and most significant and serious betrayals of trust is that a person uh, on the day of judgment will be that person who has been intimate with his wife and his wife has been intimate with him for lack of a better term. And then after that he goes and reveals, he goes and opens it up and unveils it and today it's become very easy. Today it's become very easy. You unveil it on Facebook. You put it on, on the social media. So much so that unfortunately it has led to deaths as we saw recently in Italy. Uh, though it was a mistake on her part to have started it off anyway. But when somebody's revealing things have come out, then they, can't, they get taunted. They can't live with it anymore. But unfortunately this is something we have to be very careful about. About what is revealed and divulged out there. So these are some contemporary lessons that we can uh, take from this. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu is on his deathbed. Now you know from the story of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu that he was attacked. But then he had some time before he passed away where he was able to give a certain uh, number of uh, uh, counsels and guidance and he established this committee of who's going to be the next Khalif where he put the six people in so he said at that point, he said, Laukana. He used to love Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, you'll see that. He used to love and appreciate him. But at this point, Abu Ubaidah radiallahu had passed away. Because this was the, the end of Abu Umar radiallahu anhu's life. He said, Laukana Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah hayyan lastakhlaftuhu. If Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah was alive today, I would have 
made him the next Khalif. Because Because if my Lord was to question me about it, it was, it's a matter of accountability, isn't it? To make the next Khalif, to designate and appoint the next Khalif. So he said that because if my Lord was to question me about that, had I done that, then I would say, Istakhlaftu Amin Allah wa Amin Rasulihi. That I have just made the next Khalif, the, the one who's considered trustworthy to Allah and the one who's considered trustworthy to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa because the Prophet ﷺ had called him the Amin. He was one of the most beloved people to the Prophet ﷺ. He was one of the most beloved. That's why there's a narration from Abdullah ibn Shaqiq. He says that once I asked Aisha radiallahu anha, Ayyu ashabi Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana ahabba ilayhi. Ahabba ila Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Which one of the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were the most beloved to him? And she said Abu Bakr, her father. Then I said, he says, Thummaman, who then? He said, Umar. Then he said, who then? He said, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. In fact, there's another version of the narration which says that who, should be the, who would be the most likely of Khalif? It's another version. But anyway, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah comes here next. And then he said, then who? Who's number four? And then she remained silent afterwards. Narration of Tirmidhi, he says, Hadithun Hasanun. Sahihun. This is the narration of Tirmidhi. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, when he migrated to Medina Munawwara with the rest of the Muslimin, the Prophet ﷺ made him a brother of Abu Talha al-Ansari radiallahu He's another famous Sahabi because everybody that went, they were paired up with one of the Ansar. So he was paired up with Abu Talha al-Ansari, though there's other versions mentioned as well. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, now... We're just uh, mentioning, because his main history, his main history starts after, during Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's time. In fact, before Islam, we don't know much about him. He was in Mecca. He was not one of the wealthiest. He was not of the leadership people. He was not one of the leaders of Quraysh. He was, he was not one of the high class people of Mecca. Let's put it that way. He was not of that class. Not much is known about him. His history begins when he becomes a Muslim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him, made him a somebody from being a nobody the day he became a Muslim. And today that's how we know about him. In fact, Damascus, much of Sham, owes, all of that is owed to, uh, uh, they, own a, they owe a great amount of due to Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. A nobody. And then suddenly he becomes a great body. So, during the Saqifah, Saqifah is the famous incident after the Prophet ﷺ passed away. The Ansar and the others, they had gathered, the Muhajireen, they had gathered in the Saqifah of Banu Sa'ida. This is like a, 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 like a little shed, like a little roof, canopy, canopied area where people would gather. And the discussion was, Ansar is saying, one Khalif from us, and one Khalif from you guys, from the Muhajirin. Now Abu Bakr and Umar they had to keep the Ummah together. So Abu Bakr, Umar, and Abu Ubaidah. Now you see how this connection is? That they are generally together. Abu Bakr, Umar, and Abu Ubaidah, they go there. And Abu Bakr, uh, Umar is about to speak, but Abu Bakr says, no, let me speak. So Abu Bakr Siddiq, he says, he makes a, dis he makes a speech. And he says, no, there has to be just one imam and that has to be from the Quraysh. 
And then after that he says, And I am satisfied for the next Khalif to be Umar ibn al-Khattab wa Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. I am happy that it could be either Umar ibn al-Khattab or Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. That proves something very significant coming immediately after the death of Rasulullah from none other than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq Of course, Umar then came in and he said, give me your hands Abu Bakr. And he gave the bayah and then after that everybody just followed suit. But Abu Bakr saying this means that Abu Ubaidah was definitely worthy of Khilafah. Worthy of Khilafah, in fact not just that, but he is of the status of Abu Bakr and Umar in some sense. Not the exact same because clearly Abu Bakr is the highest, Umar is the second highest, Uthman third and Ali is the fourth. But it just shows that he's very close to their status. Even though, as I said, he's not from the high levels of Quraysh, high class clans of Quraysh. But with his khidmah of Islam, he gains a high status. Now, uh, as I've mentioned before, that during that time, they will always mention how many battles everyone took part in because that was the struggle to prove that you defended the community because a great amount of defense was needed at that time. So he didn't miss a single battle. He was there right from the beginning, fi jami'il ma'arik, as they say, in all of the expeditions from Badr to Uhud to all of them. And he has some wonderful he has some wonderful accomplishments in all of these. In fact, he mentions that during the Battle of Badr, and there's some difference about this, but he, killed, he had to kill his own father. Though he tried to avoid him in the beginning, he kept coming in front of him, then he had to slay him. And then it mentions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, لَا تَجِدُ قَوْمًا يُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ يُوَادُّونَ مَنْ حَادَّ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولَهِ وَلَوْ كَانُوا آبَاءَهُمْ أَوْ أَبْنَاءَهُمْ أَوْ إِخْوَانَهُمْ أَوْ عَشِيرَتَهُمْ these are the people who Allah has written Iman in their hearts. And He has supported them and strengthened them by the Ruh from Him. And He has entered them into the gardens. He has written them to be from the gardens beneath which rivers will flow. To remain therein forever. Allah is happy and satisfied with them and they are satisfied with Allah and he doesn't stop Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just continuing the praise and Allah doesn't waste his words and then he carries on he says Ula'ika Hizbullah though that is the party of Allah that is the party of Allah and you know what the party of Allah is Allah inna Hizballahi humul muflihun and it is only the party of Allah that will be successful, ultimately successful. Suratul Mujadala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us Iman like this. There's a famous story related about one of the battles. He was in all of the battles. Jabir radiallahu anhu relates this. Hadith of Bukhari and Muslim. Though these words are from Muslim. He says, Jabir radiallahu anhu says that once Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam sent us on an expedition, one of the ghazawat, and Abu Ubaidah was made the Amir. Abu Ubaidah was the head of our force. And we were after this caravan of the Quraysh. We were pursuing a caravan. It was some skirmish to do with the caravan of a Quraysh. And what he gave us as supply was a bag of dates 
Just a single bag of dates is all we were given for our provisions. Great struggle in the beginning of Islam. The opening came afterwards. Anyway, he says that Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu used to give each one of us each day one date each. Here's your date, here's your date, here's your date. And I don't think they were medjool dates. Those fake big sugar dates that don't have any taste, right? Uh, they were just dates, whatever dates they were, one date each. So he says, uh, Jabir then says that, Kayfa kuntum tasna'oon biha? What did you used to do with one date? So you know what they used to do? He says that we used to suck the date like a child sucks on a sweet or something. And then we used to just drink some water on top of it. We get some nutrition from it. So we used to just suck the date. Whenever we felt hungry, we used to suck the date, not eat it. And we used to drink some water on top of it. And that used to suffice us for a day and night. One date a day. That's what we used to get, day and night. And then he says, the other thing we used to do is we used to have our sticks and we used to take the leaves of the trees and we used to boil them in water and we used to eat that. It was leaves and dates. That's all it was. The leaves, I don't know what kind of protein they provide. The dates provide a bit of protein. Right? However, we got to the coastline and suddenly we see in front of us we see on the coast this huge mountain like object like a hill we got to it and it was it was a beast we say beast here it's a mammal of the ocean and this is the great whale which whale? I don't know. But it was great. Tud'a al-Ambar. They call it the Ambar. Abu Ubaidah said, Mayta, this is deceased. This is dead. We can't eat it. No, but then he said, Bal nahnu Rasulullahi, nahnu Rasulu Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa We're the messengers of the messenger of Allah. We're in a state of need. Though this is deceased, it's a mammal, it's deceased, it's dead. Generally, we shouldn't be eating dead things. But we are in the path of Allah and we are in extreme need. So this should be halal for us. Right. He did his ijtihad straight there and he said, yes, this should be halal for us. We stayed there for a month. After suffering with one date and leaves per day, we stayed there for a month. We were 300 people until we put back on our weight, until we became healthy again. And he says, I can remember seeing that we would literally scoop out in cups the oil from its eyelid, from its eye socket. We would just scoop it out. And we would cut off pieces of its meat as much as a buffalo. That's how huge chunks we would cut off it. It was a massive creature. And Abu Ubaidah, what he did, radiallahu an, he, he got, you know, in its eye socket, he put people in there to go on, you know, once it was cleaned out, he put, how many people will fit into that? He lined 13 people. 13 people were able to sit in its eye socket. And then he said, we took one of its ribs and we stood it up. And the highest one of our horses, somebody rode with that underneath it and they were able to pass through. And then he said, we took a large supply of its meat as well. They probably dried it because in the, you know, it's very hot down there anyway. So they dried it and we took it along with it. This is what you have in coastal areas is fish. 
I mean, I was in Maldives for a day recently and the, everything is imported there because it's just islands, 1200 islands. They can't produce much there except coconut, right? Maybe a few fruit if they're lucky. And tuna fish, bluefin tuna, that's it. So they do everything with this tuna. They put it in everything. They make, they make, uh, they make it into tuna chips. They, they put it into food. They, they dry it out. And that's all they do. This is what you do in those places. You take what you have and you work with it. So this is what they did. So anyway, he went and they, they took some of that with them as a supply and they went back to Medina Munawwara and they mentioned the whole story to the Prophet And he said, This was your sustenance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought out for you. And Have you got some of that meat left? And give it to me. Right? Now he's not under duress necessarily to eat this, but it's halal. And this proves that all fish are halal. In the Hanafi school, all fish are halal. For non-Hanafis, everything from the sea is halal, including cuttlefish and octopus and squid. The Prophet ﷺ said that this is uh, your food that Allah has provided you. Have you got some? Give me some. So we sent some to the Prophet ﷺ and he ate from it as well. Now, the, one of the main achievements of Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah were the conquest of Sham. Now this is not something that we can go into in any kind of depth right now because that requires a long history of which towns and which cities they went to, the battles they won, what kind of people they were fighting against. It's a long history and that takes, that's all part of Khalid bin Walid's story as well. So we don't have time for that. With Ali radiallahu is very important because there were a number of significant factors directly related to him. That's why we dealt with whatever we dealt with at that time. However, there's a few things. First and foremost, our problems with the Romans had begun in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu That's why there were two expeditions minimum that were sent against the Romans. One was Ghazwa to Muta, which is in... The middle of Jordan today, Muta, the place is called Karak in Muta. That's where initially it happened. The Romans were going to attack the Prophet ﷺ, sent an army of Ja'far radiallahu an, Abu Abdullah ibn Rawaha and Zayd radiallahu an. There were three of them were martyred there. So that it starts from then. Then there was the one of Tabuk, but nothing, no battle occurred. Though it was a very difficult expedition towards the end of the Prophet's life, but there was nothing that happened eventually. There was no fight that took place. Then the Prophet ﷺ had prepared the army of Usama radiallahu anhu to, to, go, uh, to go and against the Romans. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu's time, he had to deal with the Romans. He had to also deal with all the apostatizing and all the other problems and imposters in the Arabian Peninsula. But on the front of Sham, he had the, the, uh, the expeditions on that side. And in Iraq, Khalid bin Walid. In Persian lands, he was on that side. So north is the Romans in Syria, today Syria and Jordan and Palestine, those areas. And in the east, it was the Persian Empire. So they were fighting on both fronts by the time of Bukhar Siddiq radiallahu an. In Sham, we're going to just focus on Sham just briefly. There were four main armies that Abu Bakr radiallahu an had sent. One was the army of Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Another one was Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan, Abu Sufyan's son Yazid. And the third was Shurahbil ibn Hasana. And the fourth was Amr ibn al-As Now, 
the general commandership of all of this was Abu Ubaidah. But he had his own army and the other three had their armies as well. But he was the overall in charge. Abu Bakr had given each a specific area of Sham. So Abu Ubaidah had Humps. And Yazid had Damascus. Or to get to Damascus. And Shurahbil had Jordan. And Amr ibn Asr had Palestine. So this is how it was. Then Umar, Abu Bakr, before he passed away, after he decided to take Khalid bin Walid from Iraq and send him to join the forces in Sham. And he was the one who then started moving forward. And he was very, very hasty, very fast with lightning speed. He would take by surprise. So then he started to lead many of the campaigns in Sham, in Syria. However, then Abu Bakr Siddiq passed away. And if you remember, he was alive for only about two years and four to six months or so in his caliphate. Then comes Umar When Umar comes, he switches it around. He sends a letter and he says, Khalid bin Walid is no longer the Amir. Abu Ubaidah is the Amir now. Now this is very interesting. This happened in the 13th Hijri, right? Which is the year that Abu Bakr Siddiq alone passes away. 10th Hijri, 11th Hijri is where the Prophet passes away. 13th Hijri is when Abu Bakr anhu is leaving this world. So Abu Ubaidah now becomes the Amir. And he wrote to Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah saying, Qad al-Muslimin. I've made you the Amir and in command of the Muslimin. Now you can send your contingents as you like. Keep whoever you wish with you. The rest you send in different armies. But he says, I would suggest that you keep Khalid bin Walid with you. With you. Because you need him. Keep him with you. There's some difference as to exactly which battle this took place in the midst of. Did it take place during the Damascus siege? Or did it take place during Yarmouk? Yarmouk was a very decisive battle, after, the which, after which the Romans were in retreat. That's why Yarmouk is a very, very important and significant battle. Now, this is, let's start from where Khalid bin Walid is still the, the commander. And they've started, if it's the battle of Yarmouk, they've started the battle of Yarmouk. And Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, Umar takes over. He wants Abu Ubaidah to become the next leader. Now in those days, there's no phone calls. There's no emails. You had to send somebody with a letter, a royal decree. So in the middle of all of that, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah finds out. However, he kept it concealed. He's supposed to be the leader. He didn't jump and say, hey, move up. This is my job now. He conceals all of this. Khalid bin Walid found out afterwards. So Khalid bin Walid found after the, after it's finished. He says to him, Yarhamukallah Aba Ubaidah. May Allah have mercy on you, Abu Ubaidah. Ma mana'aka an tukhbirani. Why didn't you tell me? What stopped you from telling me that you were supposed to be leading this then? Hina ja'aka al-kitab when the letter came to you. Abu Ubaidah said to him, Inni karihtu an aksira alayka harbak. I didn't, I, I didn't want to break your force. I didn't want to break, break your 
your, your force and your war because uh, sometimes that, that could be very detrimental. It is not the rule of this world that we intend. It's not the rule of this world that we intend. And it's not for this dunya that we work anyway. We're all brothers for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Abu Ubaidah has to take and assume the command of Sham. He is known to be just a very simple, straightforward individual. Simple, straightforward individual. And just with great resolution. Not a simple, simple individual, but when it comes to the crunch, he plays his part. Very humble. It was mentioned that to his ears, he found out that people were saying that he's the Amirul Umara. He's the leader of the leaders because of Yazid, Amr ibn As, and uh, the other Sahaba that were the Amirs of their own forces, but he was the overall Amir. So people started saying, wow, he's the Amir of the Amirs. He gathered everybody together, gave him a khutbah, and he said, Ya ayyuhannas, inni Muslimun min Quraysh. Oh people, I am a Muslim of the Quraysh. I am a Muslim man of the Quraysh. Remember, he came from a lowly background to start with, it seems. So it didn't get to his head, all of this. He said that there's none of you who may be red or dark, right? Different colored complexion, whatever. Yafduluni bi who has more taqwa than me, illa waditu anni fi ihabihi, except that I would love to be in his skin. If there's anybody more superior to me out there, I would just love to be in their skin. That's my position. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us these kind of characteristics. And it was Jerusalem where Amr ibn As was in Palestine. They'd taken much of the area, but Jerusalem was the trophy and that was still in the hands of the Christians at the time. Many of the cities in Damascus, uh, in Sham, uh, in Syria, were taken uh, peace with peace. There was no fighting. That was how Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, he was much faster that way. He was much better in doing that. Khalid bin Walid would just go on surprise attack and just, just take everybody out. But Abu Ubaidah, he had a different approach. So now what happens is during the Khilafah of Bakr, uh, Umar radiallahu an, Baytul Maqdis is st still holding out. And when, he, when Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah finished with the north of Sham, northern Sham, then after that, they went to Palestine. Amr, Amr ibn As anhu had laid siege to it. He'd laid siege to Quds, to what they would call Elia at that time. Elia Catalina. That was what the Romans had called the city at the time. They were, it wasn't called Jerusalem. Right? So, when Abu Ubaidah got there, the people of Quds, they said, look, we want to make a peace and we will go with peace. But we will only do it if your leader comes, Umar ibn al-Khattab. So Abu, so Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah wrote a letter to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu saying that you must come here. They will only hand over the keys to you, Sophrinus. He will only give it to you. So Umar ibn said, of course, and he came to Sham. That's a whole story on its own. And they entered in the 16th year in April of 637. That's when they entered and that was under the command of Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Now, one thing very interesting that happens is that when he comes, 
and he goes to he visits uh, when Amir al-Mu'minin comes to visit Sham his his armies in Sham in the beginning he says where's my brother he said who's your brother they asked who's your brother he said Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah that's why I said that I I get an understanding that he loved this man and Abu Ubaidah comes along on a camel with just a string for uh, controlling it and makes salam and Amir al-Mu'mineen gives him a huge hug and then he tells everybody okay now you guys can leave and he walked with him until he comes to his home his place of residence and he says I'm gonna stay with you he stays with him he finds nothing in the house nothing in the house except a sword his shield and his rahal which means his his instruments, uh, his, uh, his uh, thing for riding the animal, his saddle and this, that's it. That's all he finds in there. Umar radiallahu anhu asks him, and he says, Allah mithla ma nas. You know, you don't even have what other people have, like the basic essentials. Abu Ubaidah says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, hadha yablughuni al-maqil. This will take me to my resting place, don't worry. Maqil. This will take me to my resting place. What a statement. Maqil, the place you do qaylula, because it's not asleep forever. It's just a short nap in the, uh, in the grave. Another version has a more detailed discussion. He says, when Umar came to Sham, he said to Abu Ubaidah, come and take me to your house. It seems like they had a very free relationship. He said, take me to your house. He said, what are you going to do at my house? He said, what are you going to do at my house? مَا تُرِيدِ All you want to do is you're just going to cry out your eyes over me. You're, you're, you're just going to, you're going to squeeze your eyes out to me. You're going to wring them. That's what he says, تَعْصِرْ Asr. That's what it means. فَدَخَلَ فَلَمْ He entered, he didn't find anything there. أَيْنَ مَتَاعُكَ Where's your stuff? Where's your household items? La ara illa labidan, wa sahfatan, wa shannan, wa anta amirun, a'indaka ta'am. He says, what I see is a matted or felted wool mat, a plate, and a water skin. Absolute essentials, that's it. And you're the amir. Do you have any food? Abu Ubaidah got up and there was another covered pot there. And there, there was like a bread bin. But all there was was small pieces of dried bread inside. Qusayrat. Fabaka Umar. Umar radiallahu anhu started weeping at that time. And he said, Abu Ubaidah, as I said to you, no, Abu Ubaidah said to him, I told you, you're just going to cry out your eyes over me, O Amir al-Mu'mineen. It is enough. That which takes you to your resting place, that is all enough. Umar radiallahu anhu says that the dunya has changed us all except you, O Abu Ubaidah. But then you see, if you hear about Umar story, then you find out that if Umar the way his description is of his abstention from all of these things, then Abu Ubaidah would have had even much less than that. Because Umar didn't keep anything either. He used to eat the roughest of food. And he used to wear the coarsest of cloth. And he came on this trip, it seems, he came with patches on his cloth. That's the same person who's crying over Abu Ubaidah. And what must be Abu Ubaidah's state? 
Abu Ubaidah, you know, Umar then came with patches on his clothes. That's the famous story, you know, when his servant was riding the animal, he was walking because it was his turn. This is, subhanAllah, this is related by Imam Abu Dawud in his Sunan. And then he says, وَهَذَا وَاللَّهِ هُوَ الزُّهْدُ الْخَالِسِ This is true zuhd. Not the zuhd of the one who's faqir anyway. This is the zuhd of the one who can have everything, but he doesn't have everything. Ibn Sa'ad has related from Malik that Umar anhu sent 4,000 dinars or dirhams to Abu Ubaidah. And he said to the person taking it, he said, I want you to look at what he does with it. Abu Ubaidah distributed it all entirely. Then Umar sent that much to Mu'adh ibn Jabal anhu. He's also... And he also distributed it, nearly all of it, except a small amount because his wife said, we need a bit. Otherwise, he distributed everything. When Umar was told about this, he said, Alhamdulillah, الذي جعل في الإسلام من يصنع هذا. All praises to Allah that Allah has kept in Islam somebody who does this. We still have people like this. The profile, his profile, it's related that Abu Ubaidah used to dig graves. That was his day job before he went out. That was his day job of digging graves. Where do we learn this from? It's related from Imam Ahmad and Ibn Sa'ad and Bayhaqi from Ibn Abbas anhu. That you know when the Prophet passed away and they wanted to dig a grave for him. It mentions in that narration that there were two people well known for digging graves. They were the grave diggers. One was Abu Ubaidah. He used to do the, he used to do the trench. And Abu Talha used to do the lahad. So Abu Talha was the other one and Abu Ubaidah was one of them. That was seemingly his original day job. And this is his description. He was a tall, thin man, light bearded, with two broken teeth. His two incisors, the two front teeth were broken. But they were the envy of all of the Muslims of the time because of why they were broken. Does anybody know why they were broken? It's a very special story. And this is related, listen to it from the mouth of Aisha radiallahu anha. She says that I heard my father Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anha saying, when it was Uhud, when it was the battle of Uhud, and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was wounded on his cheek because something hit him. And two of the links of his armor, of his helmet, it pierced his cheeks. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu says that I quickly was rushing towards the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and there's another insan, another person who's rushing from the other side and my dua was Allahumma ja'alhu ta'ata may Allah make this a good thing because who's coming? And when we got to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam it was Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and he was ahead of me. He got to him first and he said As'aluka billahi ya Abu Bakr I ask you by Allah, oh Abu Bakr, and tatrukani, leave me to this. Fa min wajhi Rasulillah. I'm gonna pull this out from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So then I left him at it, and he took with his front teeth, he gripped the link from that was piercing the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's cheek, and he pulled it out, and it came out, but his one tooth came out and fell on the floor as well. 
Now that, you can imagine the pain. There's no anesthetic being used or anything. You've just pulled your healthy tooth out. He, there's one more, there's one more link. He takes his other tooth and he pulls the other link out in this state. And his other tooth, his other tooth comes out as well. So he pulls the link and his own second tooth comes out. And that's why the blood of the Prophet ﷺ mixed with his blood, it says. That's why he, in Arabic you call this athram. Somebody with the front teeth missing. I mean, there's no transplants in those days. You can't take somebody's teeth and put false teeth in. You know, it wasn't very difficult to do these things. So that's how he was afterwards. But people were envious because that was a sign of his sacrifice for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He's known for having wonderful character, extreme forbearance, and lots of humility. The plague of Amwas. The plague of Amwas. Now these forces, they've taken so much area. And there's a huge Muslim force because they had to. The Romans were in hundreds of thousands. Huge army. Imam Bukhari relates from Ibn Abbas anhu that Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu went to visit his armies in Sham. He got to a place called Sarg. Sarg is the border of Hijaz, which is part of Arabia, and the border that starts with Sham. So it's basically the meeting point of Hijaz and Sham. And that's where he met the Umara'ul Ajnad. He met all the leaders of the, the commanders of the forces, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and the others. They told him, they informed him of something that, look, don't go ahead. Because what's happening behind in Sham is that a plague has hit this. Now just before this, there, there was in Medina Munawwara, there was a huge drought. So much so that the people of Medina began to struggle. Medina Munawwara. So Umar radiallahu anhu, he wrote to all the governors in different areas, that we need supplies. Abu Ubaidah said, I will send you so many supplies that the front line of the supply will be in Medina Munawwara and the back line of it will be in Sham. However, after this, a plague hits Sham. Now this, they're meeting at the border and behind, as you go more into Sham, there's a huge plague. Ibn Abbas said that Umar anhu says that, okay, I need to make a decision. Should we continue? What should we do? Call the Muhajirin al-Awwaleen, the, the first Muhajirin. He called them, he asked them, what should we do? They gave him conflicting answers. Some said, you should carry on ahead, yes. You should carry on ahead. Others said, no, you should go back. Then he called the Ansar. Same thing. They gave him both of these opinions. Then he says, bring me some of the sheikhs of the Quraysh. Min muhajarat al-fatih. When he called them, there were probably less of them anyway. He said that none of them differed. They all had one opinion that you should go back. You should not let your forces continue into this plague. Meaning any new people into this plague is not right. Umar radiallahu anhu then makes an announcement and he says, Inni musabbihun ala dhahrin fa'asbihu alayhi. Fa'asbihu alayhi. I am gonna leave. In the morning, I am gonna leave. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah came up and he said, Afiraram min qadarillah. Are you running away from the decree of Allah? Are you running away? He had the other opinion at that time. Are you running away from the decree of Allah? And Umar radiallahu said to him, as I said, he had a very easy relationship with him. But he said to him, لَوْ غَيْرُكَ قَالَهَا يَا أَبَا عُبَيْدَةً If only somebody else had made this statement, not you. This is unbecoming of you to make this statement. And he said, نَعَمْ نَفِرُّ مِنْ قَدَرِ اللَّهِ إِلَىٰ قَدَرِ اللَّهِ 
we're running away from, we're escaping from one decree of Allah to the other decree of Allah. We're still going to the decree of Allah. Nobody knows what the decree of Allah is. And then he gave him an, him an example. He says, look, if you have camels and you went into a valley and there were two pastures, two places where you could make them graze. One was hard land, stony land. The other one was a soft land. Which one would you take them to? Whichever one you take them to, they would both be considered the decree of Allah. That would be the decree of Allah because nobody knows before you do it, what are you going to do? Only Allah knows anyway. So how can you say, no, that was the decree, but I went against it. The decree is what you do. So he explained to him and he was fine. And then what happens is, Abdurrahman ibn Awf who had been absent till now somewhere else, he walks in and he found out about all, about all of this. And he said, you know what? سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إِذَا سَمِعْتُمْ بِهِ بِأَرْضٍ فَلَا تَقْدِمُوا عَلَيْهِ If you hear that a plague has hit a place, then you should not go to it. And وَإِذَا وَقَأَ بِأَرْضٍ وَأَنْتُمْ بِهَا If it occurs in a place where you already are present, then فَلَا تَخْرُجُوا فِرَارًا مِنْهُ Then do not run out of it, trying to escape. Umar praised Allah and said, praised Allah that he had made the right decision. And the reason for this is that if, if you're not affected yet, why affect yourself? But if you're there already and you run away, then you are going to spread the germs. You're going to take it with you. So now you leave, live there, you stay there and you see what happens with it. Now, this place called Amwas, this is called the Ta'un Amwas. Amwas, unfortunately today, is no longer. I visited it. I visited the cemetery as well, where there were supposed to be 30,000 or so Sahaba buried. It's a place where a huge amount of people died of this force. Eventually, out of 36,000, I think 30,000 were uh, killed by this. Where nothing else could kill them, this is what killed them. And this is just about 15 minutes from the airport in Tel Aviv. When you're going from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion, uh, not Tel Aviv actually, before that, the Ben Gurion International Airport, you get Lud, you get Ramla. This is all in Israel today and Amwas. These places were flattened by the Israelis. These were villages. And these villages in this, about three villages in this area, completely flattened. And all you have of this cemetery is a national park now. It's like this beautiful park they've made. Some graves remain. So we visited it. But that's the Amwas. Abu Ubaidah is not buried here, alhamdulillah. He is buried in Jordan, which is in Jordan today. So his grave, according to what's the most well-known place that is well looked after. It's not, it's not here. But there were numerous other people who had died here in this place. Umar radiallahu anhu, as I said, he loved Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarras. When he heard, after he returned, he heard that now this plague has really spread and it's like wildfire. So he wrote to Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarras and he said, إِذَا وَصَلَكَ خِطَابِي فِي الْمَسَى if this letter of mine, message of mine, reaches you at night, in the evening, You are not allowed to stay until the morning. You must leave immediately at night. And if this letter reaches you in the morning, then you must not let nightfall come, except that you have turned around in me. I have a very important need with you. Ya Allah, 
Abu Ubaidah is an intelligent man. He understood what Umar was trying to do. He wanted to protect him from the, the plague. He wrote to Umar This is why I talk about an Amin, about a trustworthy individual. And he said, Lakad wasalani khitabuk. Your message has reached me. O Amir al Mu'mineen, and I've understood your intention. I understand your intention. But I am in an army of Muslimin. And what happens to them must happen to me. What they go through, I must go through as well. Fahallilni, please let me off. Free me from this resolution you have made, O Amir al Mu'mineen. When this letter got to Umar, عنه, he cried. And he said, people asked him, has Abu Ubaidah died? Is that why you're crying? He said, La, wa ka'an qad. But it is as though he's dead. It is as though he's finished. Abu Ubaidah, as I mentioned, was in 36,000 army strong. 36,000. However, only 6,000 survived. 6,000 people survived. All the others passed away. Imam Dhabi has related that the Amwas problem, initially Abu Ubaidah and his family were free from it. They were, they were safe in their camp. Nothing had affected them. And he made a dua. He said, Allahumma nasibaka fi ali Abi Ubaidah. He said, oh Allah, where's the portion of Abu Ubaidah? Where's our share of this? On his little finger, he developed a small pimple, a small spot. And somebody mentioned something about it. Now, look, you've also got a spot. He said, Naha laysad bishay, it's nothing. And then he said, Arju an yubarik But I hope that Allah gives barakah in it. Allah gives barakah in it. فَإِنَّهُ إِذَا بَارَكَ فِي الْقَلِيلِ كَانَ كَثِيرًا That when he gives barakah in something small, it becomes very a lot. That's why Tabarani relates that when the plague hit very hard, Abu Ubaidah stood up as a khatib and he said, Oh people, remember that this difficulty you're going through is mercy for you. It's a dua of your prophets. And this is also the source of many salihin dying before you. And Abu Ubaidah asks that he also be given his share of this. Anyway, eventually he was affected and he passed away. When that happened, Mu'adh ibn Jabal was told to lead the prayers. He prayed and then he stood up and he said, O oh people, in, he said, oh people, you are stricken by the death of a man. By Allah, I don't know whether I have seen a man who has a more righteous heart who was further from all evil and who was more sincere to people than he. Ask Allah to shower, tarhamu Ask Allah to shower him with his mercy and Allah will be merciful on you. Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu passed away on the 18th, in the 18th year of Hijrah. And this was 639 CE. His grave is in a place called Ghawrul Urdun. It's I would say it's northwest. It's kind of northwest from Amman. Northwest from Amman. To the north, to the east of Amman is the tree that the Prophet 
rested under. In Jordan, they still have a tree. They say that's the last living Sahabi as such. A tree that saw the Prophet Can you believe it? In Saudi, you don't have them, but you have it in Jordan. Right. And then Karak and where the Battle of Muta took place, it's about two, three hours down south. Right. So anyway, he's buried northwest. And they say that he was on his way to pray in Damascus. He was on his way from his force to pray in Damascus. But at this place called Fihl or whatever the area is, which is close to that area, this is where his death overtook him. He passed away. He was 58 years old. He was 50 years, 8 years old. And as I mentioned to you that there's very few hadith directly transmitted from him. There's a lot transmitted about him, but very few transmitted from him because he was, as you can see, he was completely occupied. But may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him this great place in Jannah because of radiallahu anhu wa radu'an, we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also grant us the ability to follow in their footsteps. Inshallah, we make a small dua. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarakta ya dal jalali wal ikram. Allahumma ya hayyu ya qayyum bi rahmatika nastaghith. Subhanallah al-aliyya la'ala al-wahhab. Allahumma salli wa sallim ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ahli Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. Oh Allah, we ask you for your mercy. Oh Allah, we ask you for your strength. Oh Allah, we ask you for your compassion. Oh Allah, we ask you to forgive us. Oh Allah, we ask you to make us true representatives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Oh Allah, we have sinned greatly. We have sinned deeply. We have sinned frequently. Oh Allah, we have many sins to our name. Oh Allah, we read... We hear these stories, we relate these stories. Oh Allah, make them a truth for us. Make them a true inspiration for us. Oh Allah, don't make this a mere story time. Oh Allah, make it a true inspiration from us. Oh Allah, whatever little we can learn from here, whatever little we can be inspired from this. Oh Allah, we know that they are role models for us. Oh Allah, allow us to take them as role models. Oh Allah, grant us the strength that they had. Grant us the akhlaq and character that they had. Grant us the conduct that they had. Grant us the trustworthiness that they had. Oh Allah, we ask that you reward them on the behalf of the entire ummah. And oh Allah, that you grant us great people like these as well. Oh Allah, from among us. Oh Allah, we ask you for the karima on our deathbed. Oh Allah, we ask you for resolve of all of the conflicts that are taking place around. We ask you for unity. O oh Allah, we ask you for unification of our hearts. And O oh Allah, we ask you for strength in our hearts. O oh Allah, we ask you for the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that you send your abundant blessings. And O oh Allah, all those who make this, make this program uh, work here, make this program come about here. All those who volunteer and organize. O oh Allah, grant them all the greatest reward. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifuna wa salamun alil mursaleen wa alhamdulillah.